Hello, and welcome to the Armchair Scholar Podcast, a place where I share short, informal literary analyses that cover a range of topics. In this episode, I'll be talking about food ways, or the way that food represents or functions as an aspect of culture. Specifically, we'll be looking at food ways through the lens of different literatures that help illuminate the flawed ways in which food is presented as an aspect of culture in Savannah, Georgia. But, I'll also discuss how the hypocritical representation of foodways in Savannah is present in the southern United States more broadly. I'll describe what I term double-mindedness, used synonymously and together with hypocrisy, as a phenomenon where one might hold two or more contradictory beliefs, or might hold two or more beliefs whose purposes are at odds with one another. On one hand, the people in Savannah and the Greater South largely consider their culture, norms, and foodways sacred and unique to Savannah itself, and not to be cheaply behaved or consumed. Yet, on another hand, Savannah is now one of the most popular cities in the South and a major tourist destination. To the north and east are Hilton Head and Tybee Islands, respectively, which, combined, saw some 3.5 million tourists in 2015 alone, and that number has risen each year. This rise in tourism, I propose, has caused Savannah to abandon its sacred foodways by commodifying them for a tourist crowd. They keep up an appearance of reverence and sanctity regarding their unique history of food, yet sell out their foodways to cater to outsiders for monetary gain. For instance, River Street, the northernmost street in Savannah that lines the Savannah River, is the most trafficked street in the city for its many shops, boutiques, and restaurants. However, the street is lined with restaurants that can be found elsewhere in the country in major cities in the north. National and regional chains like Joe's Crab Shack, The Shrimp Factory, Boar's Head Deli, and even more popular chains like Outback Steakhouse line River Street. Savannah's foodways represent several forms of appropriation, most interestingly the appropriation of their own foodways through the cheapening commodification of them for monetary gain. Yet this commodification also appropriates the foodways of those who share a haunting history and conscious memory of the slavery that gripped them. The same people, as poet and scholar Kevin Young describes, quote, whose only meal otherwise may be sorrow, end quote. I argue that Savannah has profaned its own sacred foodways for the sake of money and appearances, while continuing to act as if these foodways are sacred, and that this case represents appropriations that happen across the country with respect to food. Now, communications professor Richard Rogers explains appropriation as, quote, the assimilation and exploitation of marginalized and colonized cultures, end quote, and that the appropriation affects the survival of subordinated cultures and their resistance to dominant cultures, which explains how any commodification of food and foodways from oppressed peoples are necessarily an appropriation of a culture by a dominant entity since food is ultimately a product of culture. So says theorist Roland Barthes in his 1997 essay titled Toward a Psychosociology of Contemporary Food Consumption, which explores this very concept. Commodification of food in Savannah is necessarily a double-minded practice of commodifying culture, as the culture or community doing the commodifying is the same culture being commodified. To give a little context to this discussion, the history of Savannah, Georgia itself finds beginnings in double-mindedness. In 1729, General James Oglethorpe, a member of the English Parliament and the man who would go on to settle and plan the city, was appalled at his friend's death after being incarcerated in the unjust debtors' prisons in London. This event is what Savannah historians and food critics Donald and Stu Card consider the catalyst for his settling in the Americas in their food history book titled Savannah Food, A Delicious History, which follows the history of foodways in Savannah since the Revolutionary War. With the support of fellow parliamentary members, he endeavored to start a British colony in the Americas for released debtors of the crown. 
Furthermore, the humanitarian nature of the mission led him to create a board of trustees whose motto was not for self, but for others, and whose sole purpose was to manage the colony independently of the crown. The double-mindedness began when Oglethorpe arrived in the Americas in what is now the southern bank of the Savannah River near the Atlantic Ocean, where he established, against the wishes of his fellow board of trustees, that slavery be illegal in this new community, along with other strict rules. No hard liquor, no lawyers, no Catholics, and no Jews. Slavery remained illegal in the 13th colony for the entire duration of Oglethorpe's tenure on the board of trustees. Besides the irony of endeavoring to create a colony with the motto, not for self, but for others, and simultaneously not allowing different people groups to settle there, Oglethorpe had borrowed Carolinian slaves to do the initial work of clearing the land for development. All the while, he fought a petition by his settlers to allow slaves, just two years after they landed on shore. The double-mindedness does not end there, since Oglethorpe eventually left the Board of Trustees when the others wanted to relax the colony's rules originally set by Oglethorpe. He literally abandoned the colony in 1749, 16 years after having landed in it, when he stepped down from the board. Knowing that his colony was failing due to poor crop production, he parted ways, after which the board continued its management another year and a half before relinquishing its charter to King George II in 1751, who immediately allowed the acquisition of slaves in the colony. Oglethorpe knew this would happen. Today, double-mindedness in Savannah looks much differently, especially in the realm of foodways. Savannah is keeper of many of the traditional dishes of the American South, fried chicken, cornbread, collard greens, and the like. Yet it also touts its own unique traditions, which claim to include shrimp and grits, low country boil pots, crab stew, traditionally called she-crab stew, scored flounder, and any number of pecan-based dishes. But claims of authenticity breed problems, especially when examining artifacts of culture like foodways. I make no claims that Savannah has a set of authentic, essential foodways, nor do I claim that deviance from a particular foodway considered authentic or essential is inherently negative. I am, however, making a claim about the sanctity of foodways that Savannah sells to tourists. The sanctity and right to be left alone of particular foodways that belong to people other than those in power and other than tourists, and the commodifying of that culture. The cultural food of Savannah, of which many popular River Street dishes are derived, can be found in a monographic cookbook compiled by Harriet Ross Colquitt, known as the Savannah Cookbook, published in 1933. There is seldom a popular food item sold in Savannah that isn't a product of oppressed peoples, and Colquitt's book is testament, as it is the product of hundreds of interviews with the African-American peoples of Savannah. Colquitt writes in her foreword that, quote, getting recipes from colored cooks is rather like trying to write down the music to the spirituals they sing, end quote, emphasizing the source of the recipes that follow, namely, African Americans who have been the subject of slavery and oppression. Foods derived from turtle, turtle eggs, okra, possum, venison, hominy, muscadine, and scuppernong fruits are seldom, if at all, served on River Street menus or even known as the cultural foods of the area, even though these foods might be more original to the history of Savannah. A southern staple, shrimp and grits, isn't even included in Colquitt's recipe book. Yet it's one of the most popular dishes served in Savannah, touted as an authentic, essential Savanian dish. As well, it's most famously served by a regional chain restaurant, The Shrimp Factory, whose name alone drips with commodification. To be fair, many of the foods we largely consider to be southern staples are included in the book, but the one that seems most culturally relevant to Colquitt include anecdotal stories about the origin or importance of the Savannah food scene, particularly that of African Americans. The recipe book outlines how to correctly stage a possum hunt, for instance. She as well outlines a turtle egg hunt, a popular pastime of the early residents of Savannah, writing that, quote, turtle eggs are a great delicacy in Savannah, and a turtle egg hunt on the full of the harvest moon 
is one of the most popular sports of the late summer season, end quote, describing the communal and cultural importance of those now rare foods. Possum and turtle dishes, while extreme examples, are no doubt evidence of the changes that the Savannah food scene has undergone since 1933. Yet, none of these foods remain touted as culturally significant should one take a stroll down River Street. These foods are still around, however, though they're found in the margins of Savannah society. These types of culturally relevant foods are no longer sold on the streets of downtown Savannah, I propose, because they aren't expedient to tourist sales. Selling an artificially cultural dish like shrimp and grits on River Street, rather than remaining faithful to the cultural food traditions of the city, is, to put it bluntly, selling out for monetary gain. Again, I'm not arguing that Savannah has deviated from some authentic cuisine and that Savannah's foodways are hypocritical for deviating from some authentic foodways. I argue, rather, that Savannah touts foods that aren't necessarily its own as unique and culturally significant in order to draw in tourists, when these foods are not relevant to Savannah at all, other than having to do with Savannah's position in the American South. It is a double-minded practice which cheapens the culture of those who had produced and continue to share these foodways. I want to bring in another text to compare the ways in which Savanian foodways differ from those areas surrounding Savannah unaffected by tourism. My chief goal is to compare only. I reiterate that I make no claims of authenticity, that one subculture of the northern Georgia coast more closely represents an authentic Savannah foodway. I am more interested in comparing the ways in which these communities treat their foodways, either as a tool of capitalism, a symbol of culture and history, or both. Roger Pinckney is a resident of Defusky Island who, in his memoir, The Right Side of the River, reveals what it's like to live on the island, which lies just five miles northeast from the center of Savannah. I had the pleasure of meeting Pinckney when I visited Defusky Island in 2019. This island is only accessible by boat, and not one usually seen by outsiders. In the words of Bo Bryan, the author of Pinckney's Forward, Defusky is, quote, complicated to get to, pricey to stay at overnight, and very expensive to build upon, end quote writing that the homesteaders and tourists have not yet overrun Defusky, which emphasized the island's isolated position in contrast to Savannah. Further, the island is home to a sizable population of Gullah peoples, who were the direct descendants of the slaves who lived in captivity, both on the island itself and the surrounding areas. It was these cultures, the slave cultures like that of the Gullah people, that largely influenced southern cuisine at large, especially those in Savannah and those on the island of Defusky, given that Savannah was an epicenter of slavery in the south. Thus, it is appropriate to compare the foodways of Savannah with those of the Gola and the other residents of the island to see how they have evolved as a result of their respective capitalist contexts or lack thereof. Food on Defusky can be appropriately described as being more about a form of sustenance rather than a social tool as in the case of Savannah's foodways, necessity rather than luxury, self-procured rather than bought, an end unto itself rather than a means to an end of capitalist gain. One of the central characters in Pinckney's memoir is Miss Pauline, who is Gola, and who frequently invites Pinckney over for dinner. At the only small grocery store on Defusky, Pinckney writes of how he picked up a sugar container with the Confederate cross buck on the label, saying, quote, I need it and I want it, but I do not buy it. I made a promise and I will stick to it, end quote, hinting that he has made it a point not to support a brand who exploits a symbol of slavery for his own gain or the gain of the company, a decidedly anti-appropriative capitalist act. His decision is understood to have been made because of his relationship with the Gola peoples of Defusky, specifically that of Miss Pauline. Brian writes in his foreword that the Defusky community is not a racist one, but that, where it exists on the island, it's a matter of individual ignorance. Pinckney's conception of food and its procurement and consumption 
is influenced by the unique politics of the island, which is small enough and remote enough to foster mutual understanding between cultures and influence the island's foodways. In contrast to bustling savannah, those foodways are largely influenced by capitalist gain rather than a coexistence of cultures as on Defusky. Pinckney tells a story of some developers building a golf course on the island, after which the famous golfer Jack Nicklaus ran into Miss Pauline. He recalls that Nicklaus, quote, went to Miss Pauline's and did not know what ochre was, and Miss Pauline did not know who he was either, end quote, showcasing the disconnect between the popular food culture of mainland America and that of Defusky Island. That Nicklaus, who likely visited Savannah during his time around Defusky since there was no hotel on Defusky at the time of his visit, did not know what okra was, is a testament to the double-mindedness of Savannah's foodways and that okra is, historically, a staple food of Savannah culture. Yet, you can seldom find an okra dish on River Street, the face of Savannah. Instead, one can find plenty of shrimp and grits, which is not a historically cultural Savannah dish, and certainly not one of Gullah culture. The island's cuisine and that of Savannah is, after all, largely influenced by Gullah culture, since they were the primary residents of the island after emancipation, until economic bigotry erected two, quote, resort plantations, according to Pinckney. Freed African-American slaves, as well, made up about half of the Savannah population after emancipation. An arm of the 1935 Federal Writers Project in Savannah did a qualitative survey of Savannah to document the nature and culture of the city, and in it, the writers wrongly aver that, quote, the Negro brought with him from Africa to America very little of his native culture to transmit and perpetuate on American soil, end quote. This is largely untrue and denies the influence of the African slave cultures and traditions on food in the American South, and particularly those in Savannah. Given African Americans' agriculturally oriented slave work in Savannah, it is no surprise that we find Defusky Island residents like Pinckney and Miss Pauline eating mainly a diet of vegetables, okra, rice, assorted greens, among others in the book. It is also no surprise we find them eating those crops that are quickly grown and easily harvestable. Joel Williamson writes in his book After Slavery that Savannah's cotton trade was so large that any vegetable production was limited to those crops which were easily grown and quickly harvestable. Williamson as well makes the point that post-slavery African Americans' food traditions stemmed from and were dependent upon, quote, their willingness to work, the hazards of nature, and their managerial abilities, end quote, developed during their time as slaves, and which are all qualities we see in Miss Pauline and Miss Nancy, another Gullah woman and Defusky Island resident. As we see from Pinckney's memoir, food on Defusky operates much differently than that of Savannah, even though these communities are just 10 miles apart. This difference can largely be attributed to tourism and the quest for monetary gain. In the process, Savannah successfully appropriates foodways from cultures like the Gullah and communities like those on Defusky. I make a final, meta-rhetorical point. I am no arbiter of culture. I cannot claim that neither Savannah nor Defusky communities are bearers of some distinct, authentic, or genuine food culture, or that deviance from this authenticity is inherently negative. I also cannot claim that all food commodification is a necessarily double-minded practice. However, it appears to me that history and literature are both testament to the ways in which Savannah has inappropriately treated and exploited its own foodways, even using foodways that aren't theirs to exploit for capitalist gain. This type of large-scale commodification of culture through food is an inherently double-minded practice in that it is a process of simultaneously claiming cultural importance of a foodway on one hand, but profaning it on the other through the commodifying of the same foodway. 
Commodifying food in Savannah is commodifying culture, and in many cases, a commodification, theft, or erasure, or all three, of a culture which didn't and doesn't have the agency to fight back. The double-mindedness found in Savannah's foodways illuminate many ways that Southern food traditions at large are commodified to the point of appropriation. We can see this mass commodification at work in various large-scale chain restaurants like Kentucky Fried Chicken, Popeyes, and Bojangles. These restaurants claim a certain authenticity that are then sold to patrons when, in fact, very little authenticity or originality might exist. These restaurants might be compared to the difference between restaurants like Taco Bell and traditional Mexican foodways. This type of large-scale commodification is clearly not particular to Savannah, Georgia, and represent the dangerous appropriation of culture that happen when those in power profit off a culture without. For the Gola and the early black residents of Savannah, those in power, those with capitalist agency have successfully and hauntingly claimed a culture that wasn't theirs and sold it off, distorted as it now may be, to the over 3.5 million tourists that pass through the Savannah city limits each year. Thanks for listening to the Armchair Scholar podcast. This episode is over, but if you want to explore more short discussions of literature, join us at our website, thearmchairscholar.com, or visit us on Twitter or Facebook.